0: on how to get back on that bicycle when we we jump back on, right? Like, we we just don't need directions all the time. And then I thought, well, I suppose it's easy to extend that same logic possibly to our own faith journeys, or in particular, to our relationship with Scripture. We know what it says, and therefore how to apply it to our lives, don't we? Maybe. Then I thought... Maybe that's how the religious leaders of Jesus' day were operating. And I guess I wouldn't fault them for that. We kind of do this in other areas of our lives, right? And as Brittany just kind of snickered, no, I don't don't actually think that we can do that. Um, Because scripture is continually reading us, interpreting the season or context in which we live. Today, being the first Sunday of Advent, we're actually jumping forward quite a bit from where we were last week in chapter 7 through the book of Matthew here. Now looking at texts that are a bit closer to Jesus's final days, okay? So between chapter 7 and 16, which is where we are today, Jesus has covered a lot of ground, and I'm going to briefly recap all of that ground for us. He has continued to share wisdom, like the golden rule, the difference between wise and foolish builders. He has demonstrated his power through multiple healings, calming a storm, restoring people back to community. Along the way, he receives questions about fasting and discipleship. And even those who were once considered enemies began to follow him, like Matthew, the tax collector. He sends out the 12 disciples to go and heal and to speak with those who have lost sight of the good road. He warns of coming persecutions, inevitable conflict, and woes, if you will, to the unrepentant or to those who do not change their minds. He stirs up some good trouble as he plucks grain and heals on the Sabbath, and of course he is then questioned by the Pharisees who ask for a sign to know where his power comes from. He shares parable after parable, like that of the sower, the weeds among the wheat, the mustard seeds, and yeast, all to share his wisdom and to teach the people. He's rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and John the Baptist is killed. Things are not looking so good. But he continues performing miracles, showing signs of the kingdom, He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, he heals more folks who are sick, he answers more questions about breaking away from the tradition of the elders. Again, he cures more people, restoring them to community, and he feeds the 4,000, to which I just think, this is exhausting, right? All of that to say, he has shown who he is, okay? And we pick up with chapter You're welcome to follow along if you want. I'll be reading from the First Nations Version. Um, As we have entered into the season of Lent, we are not engaging in conversation as a part of our teaching time, Um, but there are materials out and now somewhat spread around, so if you want to grab them, feel free. Get up now, whenever, it doesn't matter to me, Um, if you would like to utilize them as you listen to the Scripture or process things. Okay? So Matthew chapter 16 Verses one until I stop, which I think is twelve. <clears throat> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> the separated ones, Pharisees and upright ones, Sadducees, came again to Creator, sets free, who is Jesus, to put him to the test and find something to accuse him with. Show us a powerful sign from the spirit w- world above, they demanded to prove to us who you are. Creator sets free, who was growing weary of their ongoing attacks. But as always, he was able to answer them with great wisdom. He looked to the west. When the sun is setting, you say, the sky is red. It will be a good day tomorrow. He then turned to the east. At the sunrise, you say, the sky is dark and red. There will be a storm today. Then he turned to look into the faces of the spiritual leaders. You understand what the earth and sky are saying, but you are blind to the message of the season you live in. It is the bad-hearted and unfaithful people of today who look for signs, but the only sign they will be given is the sign of the prophet Wings of Dove, who is Jonah. After saying this, he left them and went on his way. He and his followers took their canoe to cross again to the other side of the lake. When they came to shore, his followers realized that they had forgotten to bring fry bread with them. Creator Sets Free said to them, Be on the lookout for the yeast of the separated ones and the upright ones. His followers tried to understand why he said this. They said to each other, Is it because we forgot to bring more fry bread? When Creator Sets Free heard them, he said, Why are you talking like this? Why are you worried that you forgot to bring fry bread? Is your faith so small? Do you have no understanding? Have you forgotten so soon how many baskets of broken pieces were left over when I fed the 5,000 with the five pieces of fry bread? How about the seven basketful left over when I fed the 4,000? how do you not understand that I was not talking about fry bread? Beware of the yeast of the separated ones and the upright ones. They finally understood he was talking about the teachings of the separated ones and the upright ones, not about yeast and fry bread. This is the word of the Lord. As is quite clear from the exhausting overview of all that had taken place up until the point of our story today, Jesus's ministry has been filled with signs, and yet now a sign from heaven or the sky is demanded. I find it interesting that these two groups, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are usually opponents, joined together as they felt their own leadership and authority being threatened. And by the way, this isn't the first time they've done this. They, they joined together um, when they went after John the Baptist. And they ask for what in Greek is called a simeon, meaning irrefutable proof. And of course, as we hear this, we all realize that such a sign actually requires no faith or no trust, right? Something irrefutable is easier to swallow and follow, isn't it? Reading this text again before I started digging into it, I, I thought I did what I recommended doing last week, approaching everything with positive intent. And I wondered how much of the questioning was legitimate, born out of their own genuine doubt. But what is made quite clear is that they are not asking in good faith. This text says that they, in the Greek, periazo him, which means to tempt or test him, and it is the same word used to describe how Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness from the text that we read just a few minutes ago in chapter 4. The simple fact is that Jesus has already shown signs and miracles publicly. Even the religious leaders had witnessed them firsthand. Jesus has not hidden them. Rather, it is the hard hearts that can't see the miracles or the signs. And the simple problematic truth is that signs can be interpreted differently. So Jesus, with wisdom, answers about reading the signs from the literal sky in a way that requires the leaders to think or to realize for themselves, kind of examining themselves, right, what's going on. And at this point I thought, this is a kind of accountability I doubt they often faced as spiritual leaders. Jesus then mentions now for a second time in his ministry a sign of wings of dove or Jonah. In chapter 12, they, these religious leaders wanted to know that Jesus' work was of God and not of Satan, and he mentions then the sign of Jonah. Here again, he reiterates that the only other sign he will give is God's coming judgment, just like God did for the Ninevites. And just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he will spend three days and three nights as the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jonah himself was the sign. Jesus himself is the sign. And at this point, he gives no other signs of his identity or his mission. He then leaves them and he went on his way, as the text says. He's not deterred from the good road. And I think it's really important to note that Jesus cannot fulfill their messianic expectations because he does not fulfill their nationalistic expectations. To which i think this sounds familiar doesn't it nothing new under the sun right i'll let you keep thinking about that one yes how exhausting right so jesus engages in maybe what we could see as his own self-care and after saying this he left them and he went on his way of course we read that some time passes as jesus and his followers crossed the lake And when warning the disciples, whose minds maybe were clouded by the fact that they had forgot to bring the bread with them, and maybe possibly clouded because of the shame they felt, they couldn't even see that the yeast he was warning them of was the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And at this point, I just imagine that Jesus is all in his own head maybe ruminating about being the target of ongoing questioning, realizing that the stakes are higher and the tension is rising. All the while the disciples are arguing amongst themselves. It's almost as if they're blaming each other and dumbfounded as they ask themselves if he was saying these things because they had forgotten some bread, as if Jesus is concerned about this. And I imagine Jesus just shaking his head. This is all I've been doing this morning, too, as I came into this building, <laughs> shaking my head. And a bit of annoyance, right? He's, I just imagine him going, mm mm So in the bit of uh, their confusion, in the midst of that, he hits them with, why? Why is your faith so small? And have you forgotten about the bread? Multiplied to feed the 5,000, and oh, by the way, the 4,000. Just like yeast can be used for good, which was made clear, actually, in the parable that he shared earlier, it can also work in a corruptive way, permeating the good. To not see this points out that his followers here are acting not like disciples, but more like the crowd, or worse, like the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves. In this, I can, I can just hear Jesus. He, you know, he's, he's spelling this out for them. So he's like, I imagine kind of him yelling. <laughs> or at least his voice is getting louder and louder, right? He just spells it out, what is quite obvious. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And while he might be kind of loud, I also kind of hear an undertone of Jesus just saying, They just have been following a recipe with no room for love or creative energy, for the fullness of God's self. And he wants them to see the threat that the teachings of the religious leaders are not only to himself, but to the way of the good road or the kingdom. At this point in the story, I wonder how doubt and shame had already played roles in the lives of both the religious leaders and the disciples as they all interacted with Jesus. I wonder how the shadows of doubt and shame fed their teachings and actions. Metaphorically speaking, the yeast they used was pervasive in the sense that it had its effect. But maybe the bread that was created fell flat or was empty. It wasn't measured by love and therefore didn't fulfill what God intended. It resulted in a small faith. As I think about living in the shadows, the shadow of doubt or uncertainty is inevitable. Shame, too, for that matter. These shadows are a part of life, of being, learning, changing, growing, becoming. And as I reflected on the text, I couldn't help but see that wisdom points out what we forget in the shadows. Wisdom points out what we forget in the shadows. In the moments we want to cr- a concrete sign or allow our own confusion to cast a shadow on faith, it is as if God says, remember, remember, I'm putting the pieces back together. Jesus is the sign, the way of faith, encouraging us to wrestle in the shadowed parts of life. Or, as the text said last week, to keep dancing our prayers, leaving room for creativity and for the fullness of God and the way to open before us. The good news is that shadowed spaces are places in which God does some of God's most deep work. It was true at creation, it was true in our own becoming and birthing, each one of us in this room. And it is true as we participate with God as co-creators today. One of my favorite passages comes to mind as I sit with this particular text. It is actually from Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, and it says this. The things I have told you in secret at night, make them known when the sun rises what I have whispered in your ears. Stand on the rooftops and shout out loud for all to hear. It's okay to not follow the recipe, to not follow what is handed to us. Measure with love, and what is created will not be flat. Question, doubt, wrestle with it. Allow the sign to be the message of the season we live in, shadowed or not. The Spirit is at work in the shadows, pointing us to remember what we have forgotten. Lent is a season of wrestling in the shadows. It is a long, slow journey, kind of like Amos's journey there opening that (laughs) door, that thing is so heavy. And yet the shadowed spaces are places in which God does some of God's deepest work. May it be so. Amen.